class is in session. You're listening to Shit Shooting 101. I'm your host, Joshua Lee. Joining us today, host and producer of The Shift. His blog is The Populist Papers on Substack. He studied philosophy at Trinity University before leaving the academic world to seek a new path of knowledge that can function for humanity into the future. A broadband surfer of reason and logic, catching airwaves of truth and reality, splashing eardrums with crests of awakened consciousness, here to liberate the masses from the drought of free thought, and to flood parched minds with critical observation and peer-reviewed analysis, it's Doug McKinney. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Josh. That was uh, one heck of an intro. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I'm the best in the biz, Doug. Uh, Joe Rogan, watch (laughs) your ass. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Pull it back, Josh. Pull it back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, so you and I, we've been uh, Facebook friends for a while now, and our paths have yeah. been crossing. You know, we've interviewed some of the same guests, and we do a lot of the same topics. So, you know, it's high time that we get together and have a conversation. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, likewise. It's always fun to talk to another uh, podcaster. I feel like we get a pretty, once you interview enough people, you get a pretty broad overview of the whole scene. So we get to have these kind of meta conversations about what's happening right. um, that you don't kind of different kind of interview than usual. Yeah. Um, so you've, uh, wrapped up your psychology of lockdown series recently. Um, now obviously we're not going to be discussing every one of the steps as outlined by John Bradshaw, but would right. you mind giving us a brief overview of character formation and childhood as it applies to the lockdown psychology of the masses, at least to whet my listeners appetite. So, uh, they do further research <laughs> into this. Sure. Um, I guess the the initial idea behind the concept of the show was to start to apply family psychology to our relationship with the government, basically. Um, you know, it's it's just kind of an interesting concept uh, that our our feelings and our understandings um, about how government works and how it operates and our relationship to it is really based in uh, our psychology, our relationship with the authority figure. So typically like the father figure in a family. Um, And I thought going down this path, it was just a, like a more sensible way to analyze what's going on politically. Uh, It just, after a while of trying to convince people that you have a different point of view. I mean, we were talking a little bit before the show, but just, you know, I I have to call myself a conspiracy theorist now, I I guess, because there's not a better term for it. (laughs) And when you uh, do have this sense of history that's alternative to most other people's, um, they just, it's like they live in a different paradigm and you can't convince them, you know, I have this alternative opinion, here's my evidence for it, can we have a conversation about it that makes sense, you know, where you are rationally engaging one-on-one with me and thinking about the truth of my perspective? Uh, and instead, you just, like, you hit a brick wall, you know? You can't have these conversations um, with a lot of people. We all know how that feels like. And um, so I really didn't know how to move forward. I mean, I'd been taught as a philosopher that logic was the way to move forward, but nobody wants to participate on that level. You know, they don't want to have that kind of discipline. And when we, we talk about politics, it almost it's just the conversations aren't never get that in depth um, because people have these presupposed notions. So I was just kind of trying to figure out the best way to actually communicate political ideas to people and um 
the psychology angle came into play. I've thought for a long time about the relationship between uh, religions and mythology and our relationship with authority. I mean, Father, God, religions, you know, what what are they about? The Ten Commandments, things like like that. Um, So um, applying the same kind of uh, archetypal thinking um, that you that you kind of use that I use to analyze mythologies um, becomes very psychological. Uh, And then it it wasn't a big leap from that kind of Jungian archetypal thinking, I guess, into the John Bradshaw family therapy uh, aspect of things and being like, we can really apply this to the community or the culture here and heal people from what I would call an abusive relationship that people have with government. I mean, we're, we're allowing, government to roll over us, you know, (laughs) to treat us like garbage. uh, And we don't really have a voice in what's happening to us. Um, So I'm hoping that the psychology angle kind of breaks through. Like, look, uh, here are the characteristics of a dysfunctional relationship within your family. Can you apply that to what the government just did to us with these lockdowns and these mandates? Uh, And hope that that could kind of crack the wall uh, in terms of political conversation and make people kind of understand like, Hey, um, something kind of nefarious is going on here. Right. And we should be doing something about it. (laughs) So I hope it worked. I mean, I hope people kind of start to understand um, that you can apply family dynamics to government. And when you do, you find out that you're in a very toxic, uh, emotionally abusive relationship. Um, and I think that needs to change. So, so that was kind of the, that's the basic gist of the show. People can check it out if they want to and see how it all played out. <laughs> yeah. And I, I urge them to check that out because it's definitely worth the listen. Um, and yeah, when you talk about this uh, kowtowing to authority, it is very uh, childlike. It's you know, it's tapping into our inner child where we want uh, these two grown leaders who we believe have all the answers. And you know, when you grow right. up, you realize that your parents were uh, just as dumbfounded as you in the end. But <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That's called adulting, right? And people right. aren't doing it. We're we're in this infantile state, exactly. And when it comes to, I mean, Dr. Fauci could say anything and people would just believe it and say, that's what the science says. And then you could be sitting there holding the, you know, 10 peer-reviewed papers that says differently. Um, and it's just astounding to me. I mean, I don't, I don't get it, uh, you know, and you can't have a conversation about it. I mean, it's, it's psychological. They're, they're, it's it's this this infantile state that's brought on uh, by um, you know the emotional trauma that I think a lot of us have endured just growing up inside of this system. I mean, I, f- I feel like on an emotional level, people have been oppressed for a long time, you know, <laughs> and it's subtle and they don't know it, but uh, it causes a lot of trauma and that causes a lot of a, this avoidance where right? people don't want to face up to the fact that the their daddy figure may not actually know it all you know (laughs) maybe dr fauci doesn't have know everything about the science that he says he does right well i don't i don't even know that it's uh so subtle anymore because when i look at um when you think of the psychology of the language that's being used against us lockdown i'm here to tell the folks out there 
that the term lockdown is not, nor has it ever been, a medical term. It is purely right. 100% a prison term. And they're trying to instill, install this thought into your mind that you are an inmate. You are guilty just by being human, and you don't get a trial. Uh, you uh, listen to whatever the guards say. You don't have any rights. If, when we tell you to go to your cell, you go to your cell. You look at words like self-quarantine. That's basically saying self-in-prison or track and trace, which is... Basically, like an ankle monitor. So you're on parole, basically. This is yeah. what they're, how they're framing our minds, that we are in a prison and you accept your prison. Yeah, I mean, it came out uh, in Britain. There, there were whistleblowers from their whole coronavirus response team who were the psychologists that were basically designed a whole program to scare the crap out of the people of England so that they would fall in line with these lockdowns. And they eventually they issued an apology saying, you know, we used psychologically coercive techniques. We're sorry. It was unethical, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's like, OK. And who knows uh, what kind of um, psychological warfare techniques they're even getting at these days with when it comes to the creation of the propaganda. I mean, we know that they've done lots of studies into how to manipulate the mass mind. Um, and we know that they employ psychologists when it comes to working out uh, how to message some of these, um, you know, whatever issue, the issue of the day, be it COVID or be it the Ukraine or be it Russiagate or whatever it is. Um, and I think they roll these things out and they know full well the importance of the use of the language. Um, like you said, terms like lockdown, uh, getting people ready to, I mean, talk about an abusive relationship. I mean, this is the getting people ready to e even the concept of imposing somebody, a medical experiment on somebody else. I mean, three years ago, that would have been, I mean, that goes against the Nuremberg code. It's anathema. It's a, literally a Nazi thing, literally. And most of America today uh, feels like that's fine. Like how, how did that happen? You know, <laughs> Well, it's not like that's never been done in America. Um, we look at uh, how slaves were used uh, for scientific experiments and, sure. uh, you know, the eugenics programs of the late 1800s into the 1900s. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Tuskegee experiments in the 70s. Right. Um, it hasn't. It, it may. It probably hasn't stopped. You know, we just don't know about what they're doing these days. <laughs> I mean, did you read in the RFK book about the Celia Farber who found um, the they were experimenting on children at a, an orphanage in New York? In, oh, yeah. In yeah. 2000 um, uh, with these uh, with these AIDS drugs. Um, and so, like, is that stuff is still going on, I think. Right. Um, they just they cover it up. And it, it doesn't matter how poorly they cover it up because they're the ones doing their own investigation. Right. The detective gets away with his own murder if he's put on the case of his own crimes. Yeah, and they seem to have quite the lockdown on certainly the mainstream media, too. I mean, there are certain things that uh, get talked about and certain things that don't. And it's pretty amazing uh, to watch the coverage. I mean, I'm not exactly sure the mechanism. I just did an interesting interview uh, about this book called Prestitutes that a German author actually wrote. And I, I did the interview with the translator, but it was about this kind of soft corruption that had infiltrated the German press 
uh, and the reasons why the the mainstream media there uh, only stuck to the official narrative, basically. You know, I mean, that's the question. It's it's a question that I think is on a lot of people's minds: is how can like how can everybody in the in the mainstream media be part of the grand conspiracy? Or that's kind of what you hear. Or you know, with doctors, like all doctors aren't into it, and they vaccines so you must be anti-science or something um but it's not like they're all in on some grand conspiracy it's like the whole system the corporate system is filled with this kind of soft corruption where everybody gets perks as long as they tow the line you know and if you don't tow the line then you get kicked out of the whole scene um and so it's just it's just so easy to kind of fall into it it's like everybody else is doing it uh, it's only a little bit corrupt, you know. <laughs> and, I mean, in the in the book, the journalist was talking about just getting free trips to different places to write good reviews of where he went to, or um, you know, getting to go to the, that think tank and get and get and uh, getting paid to do a speech at a, a a prominent think tank and hooked up with the five star hotel, or getting a you know a high journalism prize from one of these organizations and guess what you tow the line you don't get a promotion unless you do you know <laughs> and so. yeah there's there's a lot of um when you talk about how we uh they dismiss us by saying they can't all be in on one grand conspiracy but that uh, that goes along with our you know the perspective that we have of what the news is like uh, mm. there this idea that there's mainstream news and that's the only news. Um, so that's where the conspiracy is right there. It's not that it's this overall overarching conspiracy that collects it all. That thing that you call alternative news isn't actually the alternative. That's just another interpretation of what current events are. And that's what news is. It's not. It's not reality. It's how this person is interpreting that reality for you. And, right. you know, so we get locked into this uh, mental thinking of this is the news. This is as it is, so long as it is my preferred news <laughs> source. Well, I mean, I really think that's what happens to people is that they just they trust a news source, you know, whether it's Fox News or CNN or NPR. And then they don't dig any deeper. They don't go beyond what that news source is saying. Um, and they they pose themselves as if they're they're different sources. <laughs> right. But um, they stick to a very similar narrative. And even if, you know, you've got like Fox News versus MSNBC, people think they're on the opposite sides of the spectrum. But overall, the narrative on really important issues uh, is actually really quite similar. Um, and yeah, at even, the end of the I mean, day, I, they're both drinking at the same bar. Right. And and we can talk about the left-right paradigm, too, which I think is absolutely uh, designed as a uh, divide-and-conquer technique. It's more like democracy management. It's not an actual functioning democracy. So they take issues and they split them up into left and right, and they say this is what a right-wing person thinks, and this is what a left-wing person thinks, and then they get us to fight each other. You know, <laughs> yeah. Instead as, of as if there's actually, no common ground. Yeah, I mean that's just it. Like we're all getting shafted by these really rich people. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. I think it's pretty simple, but <laughs> yeah, it's all implemented to keep us out of touch with the reality that uh, we have a common enemy. Because if we realized our com common enemy, we'd turn against them and be yeah. on the same side. 
That, that's the yeah. thing about uh, like uh, global politics. I've never paid attention to it. Um, you know, I'm this uh, American-minded person that I think this is <laughs> the center of the universe. You know, I've been that kind of right. stupid brain throughout my life. But um, no, it, it's not that. I'm, I'm putting myself down more than I should. It's just yeah. that sometimes you don't have time to know everything of every country. But when yeah, I started hearing sure. more about all these other countries and their political structures, and you realize they're talking about left and right. They're talking about yeah. conservatives and liberals. Um, even in uh, African countries, they have two main tribes that are battling it out. It's like right. always a structure of two. Why is that? Because if you had a thousand, then everybody would uh, everybody would realize that hey, we do have uh, some sort of common core amongst all of us. It's making it so it's black and white as to where you start butting heads. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's actually it's natural. I mean, if you look at like the yin yang symbol, right? Um, it's natural that you have opposing points of view. Um, but I think in a healthy society, just like with the yin yang symbol, you're going to be able to harmonize those two perspectives, uh, as opposed to in with the left, right paradigm. It's like, we just, you argue, you you're constantly fighting each other. You know, I mean, at best it's an argument if it's not a riot. Um, and it's just like, I, I think it, it almost takes advantage of the fact that there there is sort of naturally a, a left and a right. I mean, I you know, and it's something that is exploited uh, rather than harmonized. And and if people thought about harmonizing these perspectives, uh, then I think there could be a, a more of a kind of a unified feeling uh, amongst the vast majority of us. And that's where I mean, it's it's been interesting for me lately because for a long time I've tried to. Uh, I've tried to do this. I've tried to figure out, I come from this libertarian perspective myself. It's just always been that way since I was in school and I was learning about economics. I mean, I guess my parents were Republican, but, but um, you know, I kind of quickly became more of a libertarian and then even a, more like a voluntarist at this point. Um, but I've just been trying for a long time to try to figure out like, how can we compromise then? I mean, I can't change my libertarian principles because i it's just basically believes that you know i believe that everybody has a right to be an individual and and uh and have the freedom to choose their own life for themselves i mean you know it's pretty simple right. <laughs> and uh and i've been trying to kind of figure out how to harmonize with uh with the, the people on the left and um with COVID, especially, I've I've gotten very frustrated. I mean, I feel like as a libertarian, I don't, I'm not going to stop anybody from being, uh, you know, as communist as you want to be. Like, go for it, guys. Figure it out. Do it. You know, nobody's stopping you. Um, but whenever I try to get into uh, philosophical conversations with people that really identify as left wing, um, they're they're very staunch about certain um, certain lifestyle choices, like. Uh, you know, trading your labor for money uh, in a lot of cases or renting a room from someone or, you know, trading for a profit or, I mean, they just, uh, or, you know, having a property right. And it's like, how are you going to have a society uh, where if somebody decides they want to rent a room for the night, you know, what are you going to do? Have a mob that goes and tears them apart. It's like people, some people are going to choose that lifestyle too. Uh, and I just feel like libertarianism allows for both. But um, when I talk to 
uh, more more people who identify as uh, more left wing. It just seems like they're uh, very close minded to uh, alternative perspectives. Um, so it's it's frustrating. And, I, and I find I've kind of been coming out as a libertarian um, because for a long time, I, I didn't really want to talk about it that much. I, I've had I've interviewed a lot of, you know, radical left wing people um, kind of trying to trying to find that common ground. Um, but I don't know if it's possible. Um, I, I think that left-wing people need to realize that they're actually libertarians too, you know, <laughs> and, and we all need to understand that people deserve to be free. Um, but until we can make, we can agree on that, then uh, I don't know how, how much farther we can go, you know? <laughs> well, I, th- I think, uh, there before, uh, Trump, um, there was, there were p- p- so many people that were becoming, well, at least in America, we're becoming disillusioned and disenfranchised. And I think that's why they created a Trump and a Bernie Sanders to draw these people back into uh, the right. two-party system. Yeah, it's been a fascinating couple of years. I'm kind of of the opinion. I, I think it's a minority opinion. Uh, I just did a an interview with Dr. Mark Crispin Miller a few weeks ago. And he actually, we started talking about it. He agrees with me on this. It was kind of, kind of exciting to find someone, (laughs) but, um, that, that really like pretty much feel like Trump was probably as much of a psyop as anything else that the Trump Q thing, um, brought a lot of, of, uh, quote unquote conspiracy theorists back into the left, right paradigm to, to sort of fight on Trump's side. Um, but they, I feel like they were able to really use him to, um, to push a lot of this, uh, right wing people are domestic terrorists or neo-Nazis or fascists or something like that. Um, which is, uh, in my experience has not ever been the case, but, uh, a lot of Americans feel that way now. Um, and they were also able to use during it was during Trump that they were able to start censoring. I mean, they even censored Trump on Twitter. Um, so it was like I, I just I wonder how much control they have in terms of being able to choose. I, I, I don't trust the electronic voting machines. Um, I think that's where the real election fraud can take place. And until I see a, a serious investigation into how those votes are counted, um, I don't think that any of the. Uh, any of the elections are really very trustworthy. So I remember even when Trump won, and, and maybe it was because I was in, in California, but I remember thinking like, wow, you know, most most of the people I know, like the vibe that I got was that Hillary was going to win. And when she didn't, I, I the, you know, the little birdie kind of said, I wonder if they fixed it for Trump. <laughs> well, um, so, I don't know, but I agree with you that, that yeah, they're, they're, they're drawing people back into the left-right paradigm. They want us to stay there fighting each other. Uh, they don't want us to kind of come to the bigger realization about um, the real power gap, I think, between the classes, between the upper classes and the lower classes. Yeah, they definitely use Trump to hide a lot of the truth. Uh, if you disagree with the official narrative in any way whatsoever, you're automatically a Trumper. <laughs> And right. having to explain my way out of that bag is a real task that I'm tired of doing. It's like uh, right. you you mentioned hydroxychloroquine and you're automatically a Trumper just because he mentioned it as if Trump was the one in the lab who created this thing that's been around for decades. <laughs> yeah, no, that I mean, that whole thing is so crazy. 
it was so frustrating. I really paid close attention to that because I thought hydroxychloroquine was a clear, a clear answer. Um, you know, very early on in the Corona pandemic, when Dr. Zelenko had such success with it at his hospital in New York City during the wave, uh, that's kind of started it all. Uh, I just assumed, you know, people were going to figure it out and start to use it. And, uh, and then I, I followed closely the terrible studies that they did, um, to try to disprove it. Um, and then, uh, of course the mainstream media would just balloon all of that out into the world. And then, um, the Trump statement, which was just so amazing. I mean, talk about the left, right paradigm in action, um, because as soon as Trump said that they were able to say, look, Trump believes in hydroxychloroquine and all of my left wing friends instantly were just like, oh, my God, Trump, what an idiot, what an anti-science idiot would think that hydroxychloroquine could help you. And I'd be sitting there with all the peer reviewed studies and with Dr. Zelenko's, you know, clear example. Uh, and they, you know, can't again, just can't get through it like they couldn't see it. It became a Trump. They They stuck it to Trump and then half the country. Uh, wouldn't even talk about taking hydroxychloroquine. So sad. I, I interviewed uh, Dr. Meryl Nass, who eventually lost her license for promoting hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. And she had written this fantastic article that was called like the the 30 ways to, I can't remember the exact title, but 30 ways to create a false narrative about hydroxychloroquine. And she just went down list by list each, you know, the articles coming out in the newspapers and the Trump thing and the bad studies that were coming out um, clearly designed to attack it and cover up its efficacy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is exactly like you said, like how, how, yeah. To watch how the left-right paradigm can manipulate people if you're identifying as either the left or the right, frankly. I mean, I saw, I always compare it to the Iraq war when my right-wing friends were just, hey, we got to go to war in Iraq right. and you're crazy. If you don't believe, I mean, now it's switched. They can use either side, you know, <laughs> to their advantage. Uh, and you watch people who identify so closely with right-wing or left-wing and, and you can see the media just push a button, flip a switch. Uh, and these people are true believers, you know, nothing can change their mind. It's crazy. Yeah. That, that whole left, right paradigm, it's all centered on I'm right because you're wrong. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's no real core value to it. It's just, I'm right because you're wrong. You're bad because I'm good. Right. And I don't, I don't know how you break that barrier of something that's just based in something so over the top simplified. And um, yeah. you, you talk about in uh, your psychology of lockdown series, the bullying and shaming. And I'd like to get to that because I know mm. uh, the people who are uh, like-minded with us have definitely dealt with that. So uh, I'll, right. I'll let you start that off. However, you'd like to jump into that conversation. Well well, I mean, yeah, to get back to the psychology of it, I just want to make one more comment about about the left right paradigm that the problem I think is that people so they self identify with this. Uh, and that's where the psychology comes in, because once you're identifying with one side or the other, then you feel attacked when your side is attacked. Um, I think this is one of the real tools that they use. Uh, is the, is just, I mean, humans have a herd mentality. It's not, it's normal. <laughs> it can be healthy when it's used correctly. Um, but when people are identifying as a group, 
then they tend to just think like the group, you know, it's easier go along to get along. And, and so uh, it can be used as a real manipulative tool. And that's where things like um, the bullying and the shaming comes in, which is these are just characteristics of the abusive nature of the relationship. Um, I mean, my God, censorship, you know, the censorship that we've been dealing with uh, is 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 just um, it's just rude. You know, it's not it's it's something you, you don't treat another person this poorly. Uh, if you were treating your wife this way or your significant other, you'd be getting a divorce, you, you know, um, but people are enduring this kind of behavior um, because it's it's a it's a mass situation. It's a herd mentality. And so uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm hoping that if we can make it more obvious that this is actually abusive, um, that people can, will be able to kind of see it for what it is. But these, I mean, these tools, I think I, I liked uh, using the, the shame, the concept of shaming, because it's not only is it applicable on the political level with what we've had to deal with the mask shaming or the uh, anti-vax shaming and things like that. When you have an alternative opinion, uh, the, the pro Putin opinion these days. <laughs> um, but when you're dealing with things like the, the, the kind of shaming that you have to deal with when you bring that up is also so similar to the shaming that happens within family systems uh, that you can really start to see that the comparison uh, I think is pretty apt um, to be able to kind of show the two because people will, will shame in order to, I guess, you know, what I, what I really figured out, uh, through the course of doing the whole series was that there are just, there are two different kinds of people. There are people pleasers, and then there are the controllers. Um, and then you end up with this codependent relationship when these two kinds of people get together, what you want is to be individuated, uh, and healthy and then have an interdependent, not a codependent relationship. Um, and so when you do have a kind of one of these toxic relationships, what happens is the one person is controlling, uh, the other person is people pleasing, but they never seem so like that would be the controller would be the enabler, but the addict would be, you know, the codependent or something like that. You're going to develop some kind of toxic relationship. Um, and shaming is one of the tools that's often used by the controller to keep the, the codependent in their place. <laughs> and you get that a lot in family systems. Uh, and also a lot of people have, have felt what that felt like, what that feels like. Um, and that's actually, I extrapolate that same thing. I mean, the people that are doing the shaming on the political level uh, are controllers. It's controlling behavior. Uh, that's why I consider it emotionally abusive. And then, Right now, you know, the rest of us are kind of going along with it. It's so difficult to uh, to stand up against it. Uh, I don't know what to say about that, but I think more and more, I mean, frankly, uh, those of us who are awake to what's going on need to individuate ourselves. The most important thing to do, I think, is to work on your own emotional health <laughs> because, that way you can become a strong enough person to kind of start to figure out how to stand up against these things. Um, and the best thing to do personally in your own situation, um, because it doesn't seem to me like there's going to be any kind of major political shift, certainly before uh, a lot of these great reset measures start to really take hold. And, and who knows, um, you know, what the world's going to look like in four or five years. 
Uh, so, um, I, I feel like people taking care of, of the, their own emotional health and then the people around them, uh, is the most important thing we can be working on. Right. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, I'd like to think that we can organize politically, maybe into some kind of a movement that could make change. I mean, I'm not saying that, uh, we shouldn't try to do that, but, um, I do feel like working on yourself, working on your own character, um, trying to heal yourself of your past traumas and heal your family uh, is is probably the really the thing to focus on. I know a lot of us. I mean, my, I'm the worst about this. That's stressing out about the news cycle. You know, I, I don't like to be lied to. <laughs> and when they when they push a new narrative like the Ukraine, or before that it was COVID, and before that it was RussiaGate. You know, we all, um, these these uh, these narratives that come out and dominate our media landscape. It's frustrating and difficult not to feel anxiety when you're bombarded with this messaging, but it's almost getting to a place where I feel like it'd be nice to kind of uh, just turn it off, you know, turn off your TV set um, and do some meditation and <laughs> start to eat a little bit healthier. <laughs> right. Um, and when I look at the parental structure, uh, the mother and father, that may be the reason that we have the two party system because the outward appearance that they give the, left is supposed to be, you know, nurturing and caring like the mother. And then uh, the Republicans would be the father who is more protective and uh, dominant. Um, at least I, that's the outward per, uh, perspective that they give the people. But underneath yeah. it all, they're actually both bullies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did an interesting interview with a lady named Mary Lynn. She actually looks at the technocracy as the, she called it the malignant mother archetype, hmm. the, the sort of helicopter mom that's always looking, always watching, you know, and right there to make sure you do the right thing every time and, and that nothing bad ever happens to you. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting because um, most of the time I think of, of these kinds of this kind of culture as a, a, a patriarchal culture. Um, but, uh, I definitely hear where you're, where you're coming from in terms of the two party system. I mean, like I said, I think there's, there's just naturally, um, these kind of two antipodes to any, any conversation. I mean, um, when you're talking about dialectical logic, uh, the if or the then statement, or like I brought up the yin yang, uh, previously the yin and the yang, and that's the left, right. I mean, it's not that there's not some truth in the left-right paradigm, it's just, uh, it's misapplied, and then it's not harmonized. In, in traditional Chinese medicine, it would just be considered unhealthy. It's like an unhealthy way to think about history and, and culture and politics. Um, it's never really going to resolve. It's just going to keep fighting itself. So, And when you look at two drastically opposing sides, it's usually both sides are right and wrong at the same time. There's usually the overlap. It's the Venn diagram that in the middle somewhere uh, using right. both. It's like the, the whole argument that we get in with ourselves. Uh, it's like a divide and conquer amongst within ourselves without them having to impose anything. But like, I look at the whole germ theory versus terrain theory. What if both are right and wrong at the same time? What if both sure. connects together and fills in the gaps of one another? Can we even consider that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, one of the things that I've been um, thinking about lately 
I guess it's been about six months or so somehow. Oh, it was, uh, well, uh, it was um, the Derek Bros conversation with Allison McDowell when they were talking about cryptocurrency. And Derek kept saying, you know, there's more nuance to this conversation. Um, and I thought that word nuance is, is, is really uh, appropriate. It's something that I, when I get in conversations, typically with the progressive minded person, certainly these days over COVID, um, I feel like uh, the conversation stops before we really get into the nitty gritty and the nuance and the, and the, uh, um, you know, where you're going to find that common ground. Um, and so it, it, just it, 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 using that word, I started thinking about it a lot um, when I hear especially something that's the narrative that's coming over the airwaves that is, uh, you know, it can be defined by propaganda because you can see the lack of nuance. There's no attempt to harmonize the other side. They're demonized. They're just wrong. You're looking at that emotional bullying and the shaming that comes when you disagree with that dominant narrative. Um so it's it's taking advantage of of the way life actually works, but it's like corrupting it <laughs> and making it um, it not not grow organically as it should. When we have these political conversations, I mean, our, you know, in terms of our political culture evolving, um, it doesn't happen because the conversations lack lack this kind of nuance. The other thing I was going to bring up about it is. Um, the, when I did have that conversation with Mary Lynn, we talked about this uh, idea of sovereign communication. And it was, she has this really fascinating um, um, technique. What do they call it? It's like a nonviolent, a conflict resolution technique is what I would call it. It's kind of like nonviolent uh, communication. But she, she urges people to be more logical. Um, I think that if we can get over the argument part and we can find that common ground that middle way um by fusing what mary was talking about us was almost this fusion of of real logical discipline like we talked about the trivium method if you're familiar with that and and just really being able to apply logical fallacies and trying to figure out you know if your perspective is valid or not um and then coupling that with with a real strong emotional intelligence that recognizes that you know, if you're pushing on somebody's uh, cognitive dissonance or they don't want to, you know, they don't want to go there, um, then you can change the subject or stop talking or, or you know, have respect for how people, um, people's feelings. Um, and this seemed like a, I mean, it, it's almost like a common sense way to, to use the yin and the yang to have meaningful conversations with other people without getting into all this uh this just the silly infighting, the silly fighting that seems to happen when you get to a, a place, um, I think, where you self-identify maybe with uh, a belief system that's not actually happening in the real world, you know, <laughs> like uh, when, if you go to marriage counseling, I, I never been, but I, I did take some psychology courses. So one of the, yeah. the most basic first things they tell you to do is quit using you statements because you're aut automatically projecting onto them. Use right. I like I feel that, you, you know, so you're you're putting it in a position of um, them recognizing this is you saying 
how you feel. This is coming from the way that you're seeing it and thinking it. And now I can uh, tell you how I feel. <laughs> and that's, that's something that we don't do. We, it's, it goes automatically to an ad hominem attack mm-hmm. from both sides. It's, uh, well, you're a conspiracy nut job. And then the other person, well, you're a sheep. So it, yeah. neither one heard the other person's side. Neither one even engaged in that. It was just shut down from the beginning. So why would anybody ever wake up if you're not actually engaging them and hearing what they have to say? Yeah, that's right. I mean, from my point of view, I'm starting to think that, you know, people are basically literally hypnotized um, by the TV and the news and the media. Um, I mean, they, they use psychological techniques, even the color schemes uh, that they use on a lot of these um, backdrops. They look like the, the production value is so high, um, but there's a lot of uh, manipulation going on, even in the color schemes and the newsrooms and stuff to, to kind of hypnotize you. I wonder if I mean, we, we just we know that the Tavistock Institute exists and we know that they study uh, all the different ways to to program people's minds and change and alter the mass consciousness. I just, you don't know exactly the techniques they're using, but they're pretty sophisticated. I mean, and so at the end of the day, I've actually started looking at it as a kind of, a, I guess, a, a trauma that people are suffering from rather than like, you're wrong. You know, your point of view is wrong and I'm trying to um, change your mind. I mean, you can't change another person. That's another thing that's psychology 101. <laughs> Stop trying. <All> right. <laughs> and uh, um, and if you think about it in terms of, of trauma or even family trauma, I mean, we've all been in families. Uh, I, From my perspective, if you get educated at a public school, you're already um, kind of going to be traumatized into thinking that you have to listen to the authority figure. I mean, even the system of getting an A or an F for your work uh, is a form of shaming, right? You know, your work's not good enough. You get a C. (laughs) It's not, that's not a healthy environment for a child, I don't believe. Uh, And if you get raised like that, then you're going to go out into the world and you're going to have all these coping mechanisms to try to avoid, um, if somebody says, you know, you're, maybe your teacher wasn't telling you the truth, <laughs> um, you know, you had it drilled into you that you needed to do what the teacher said to make the A. And that translates right into you need to listen to NPR every morning. <laughs> and if you memorize everything that Steve Inskeep says, uh, then you can go out into the world and, and claim that you're an intelligent person. Um and people, you know, they'll go their whole lives that way. And if you try to say, you know, NPR actually is funded by uh, the, all these billionaire foundations and uh, their their coverage is highly skewed in favor uh, of the upper class and their perspective and their narrative, you know, then they just they can't even see it. They can't believe it. But it's actually, I think, a kind of a, a trauma. Like I, I said, I mean, uh with the psychology thing, what a healthy person is called individuated. Um, and by being individuated, that means that you're not easily swayed, you know, by other people's narratives that you are confident in yourself and you can make choices for yourself. I mean, you have compassion and dignity, but, but you, um, uh, you can make healthy boundaries. Um, and so when somebody starts bullshitting you, you know, a healthy person can typically kind of figure it out. Um, but people who have emotional trauma, 
You know, they're going to have these codependent co coping mechanisms. Um, and I think that's why it's so hard to, uh, to engage in these kinds of nuanced conversations um, that can really be used. I mean, that was my conversation with Mary was all about like, this is actually a technique to use dialogue as a healing modality. Basically, you can have a good conversation about politics and history and religion with your friend or your family member, and it can be healing. At the same time, you know, it can heal, it can heal uh, from the coping mechanisms of your own dysfunctional family dynamics, uh, which are caused by the stress of living in this dysfunctional culture, right? This authoritarian culture, which most people don't even understand how authoritarian it actually is. Um, but and when you start breaking it down and looking at the looking at it from the parental parental structure and the family structure and you're looking at it that way and you realize like if uh the father has been missing how that can play on maybe a uh, a daughter's psychology or mm -hmm. if there's uh some sort of sexual trauma how that manifests later in life you can you really do start applying it to this broader spectrum of uh politics and society and how uh the hierarchy works and how we mm -hmm. play into it. I mean, it, it is a really brilliant place to go. Um, and you know what? I, go ahead. We'll go ahead. Okay. I just wanted to add to that about um, the thing about the, the kind of stress that the government puts on us um, is it's a, like a long-term, they call it complex post-traumatic stress. So it doesn't, I mean, I think some people, when they, when they think about psychological trauma, they're thinking about, that that um that uh, real violent experience that somebody may have had that may have you know uh, put them in a bad place for a while uh, that they had to recover from but there's this thing called complex post-traumatic str uh, stress which is what happens when you're just slowly like if you're gaslighted for a long period of time and you'll start to feel uh, anxious and you'll have a lot of stress and you won't even know why. But ultimately, you end up with the same symptoms as as uh, somebody that had a real traumatic experience as well. And that's kind of what I think happens to a lot of people over a long over the time of I mean, again, even if your family system is perfect, which very few of us can claim that at this point. Um, but even if it was really, really healthy. Uh, if you go into the public school uh, situation, I mean, I, I think even just the way people are educated and then out into the corporate world and, and the job, uh, the way people are alienated in their jobs, uh, it's emotionally unhealthy. It can be traumatizing. That's enough, right? That's enough to, to traumatize people into this state where it's, it's they're easily uh, manipulated, easily kind of hypnotized and indoctrinated. Right. That's a good point. It do doesn't have to be a direct burn. It could be you falling asleep in the sun and over time, yeah. degree by degree, your skin slowly reddens. And yeah. uh, that's how government works. Um, they know that if they flip that switch and, you know, that kill switch, all of a sudden people would wake up. People would be like uh, people were dropping like flies around me. I better change my mind and in a hurry because right. I'm going to be next. But if they do it gradually over time then you know that frog boils yeah yeah i mean i think uh they call it david ike i think uh pen the term the totalitarian tiptoe right um and this, this is how they do it i mean uh i was actually shocked over covid when covid happened uh, i was surprised at how few of my friends 
valued things like the right of assembly, uh, or again, like I said, mentioned earlier, the Nuremberg Code. I mean, things that should just be fundamental ethical principles, uh, in my opinion. Um, it's like, uh, just again, I, I mean, I do feel like just a few generations ago, that wouldn't have even been possible to, to contemplate doing something like a lockdown scenario. Um, but now uh, enough people have been put off uh, uh, of this notion of individual rights through the education system, right? I mean, we haven't been taught uh, libertarian ideas or or natural rights-based political philosophy uh, to any great extent while we've been inundated with the left-right paradigm uh, and and uh, typically, you know, Marxism if you get farther into academia. So, um so this a lot of people have now been swayed into thinking that, you know, ideas of, of individual liberty, you know, these were ideas from 200 years ago and and uh, those people owned slaves. So they were hypocrites. So, um, you know, now we should have a system where the government can tell us that we all have to get injected with a, a medical uh, experimental, you know, medicine. Uh, and we should all just have to go along with that because that's what the government said. And that's fine with a lot of people. And that actually, it just took me off guard with COVID. How many people the didn't greatest, have a problem with that? Isn't that the greatest hypocrisy in itself? Uh, we don't want to listen to these guys because they own slaves. So let's listen to these slave masters as they own us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, even even the slaveholder argument, which certainly, I mean, uh, libertarianism is based on individual liberty so they're like it's it's just uh, insane when people try to make some kind of uh cross-reference that these people who were libertarian a long time ago had slaves and they knew it was immoral at the time uh and they got rid of it um eventually so uh it, it's it's a frustrating kind of uh, counter argument to the idea that um at, which I think is self-evident that we all have inalienable rights. Uh, you know, I mean, we're human beings. We're individuals that can make choices for ourselves when we're individuated, when we're emotionally healthy. Um, that's another so, area of nuance. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Um, and you take the nuance out and you just call these guys slave owners. And then you forget that the Declaration of Independence was actually a pretty cool document. You know, I mean, yeah, maybe the writer wasn't a perfect human being. Um, but it doesn't mean the ideas uh, aren't sound. Um, but again, definitely, that's a conversation that takes nuance and you don't get there when somebody starts screaming at you that you apparently uh, are a racist or believe in slavery or something because you're talking about uh, free market economics. And if um, we sit around waiting for perfect people to put forward the perfect system, uh, we're going to be waiting for quite some time. Well, that's another thing that has kind of blown my mind with the COVID thing was the uh, unshakable faith that people put into the CDC. Like, I think a, a casual glance at the CDC and the FDA can expose a mountain of corporate corruption. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, they call it corporate capture, right? The corporations have captured these institutions and these people always make choices in favor of corporate profits um, at the expense of, of human health. And they've been doing it over and over and over again for decades. Uh, there's just a mountain of evidence that shows people this. And yet it's like, if you disagreed with the CDC some somehow, I, I just, that boggled my mind that they couldn't see that it was 
Like, look at how corrupt this organization is. Like, just take a look, glance over there and check it out. <laughs> yeah, just look but, at a few of their lawsuits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and yet they think of it as this perfect uh, institution. They really believe Fauci when he says he is the science. They think that he's sitting there reading peer-reviewed papers and taking into account all these different points of view and then coming up with the best conclusion for everybody um and that's just not what's happening at all you know he's funneling money back and forth between his corporate buddies and he's ensuring that they're going to maximize their profits as much as possible um and he's getting paid handsomely for it um you know and yeah. i'm not saying that it's illegal or whatever but there's all kinds of of ways that these guys legally um you know get paybacks when they uh when they're helping out their corporate par partners they get patents they get kickbacks the the bydole act um gave the the workers at these um three three letter agencies kickbacks from the patent applications and just basically made uh, government employees partners with the corporations that they're supposed to be overseeing it's it's phenomenal yeah, I, I don't call uh, Fauci doctor. I, I've stripped him of his title. <laughs> He's yeah, in no way a doctor. He is Tony. He, the That name sounds right. like a mob hitman. <laughs> He's working for the Godfather. There's no yeah. doubt about that. And yeah, this guy can diagnose the, the entire country from on high without ever having seen a single patient. It's absurd. that, And I see it with uh, nurses who have been in in the field for decades who yeah. have been gaslighted and uh, suckered into this CDC bullshit. And I, I don't understand that you're seeing these people every day. You're, you knew what the protocols were prior to 2020 and then they flipped it on its head to where it's actually counter um, to controlling contaminants and this and that. And then yeah. you, you recognize how inaccurate these PCR tests, you have to, you see people who have no symptoms whatsoever who are testing positive and um, just all these measures, you're wearing masks and uh, goggles and gowns and gloves all day, every day. And yet people are still testing positives. At some point, these things can't be linking up in your mind to make sense. Right. I know. And then I couldn't believe that they actually, I mean, they ended up firing like 20% of the nurses in the country because they didn't get vaccinated. They pushed that mandate and a lot of nurses lost their jobs. The ones that were more aware, um, that was just fascinating to me. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I don't even know if we'll ever understand the full, um, impact because we certainly aren't getting statistics about, uh, the number of nurses that lost their job during that period, but that was a really hard push. And a lot of them, uh, a lot of them did. Um, and then the news would come out and say, Oh, it's the next COVID wave. And and that we're having such a hard time staffing the hospitals. I'm like, well, you shouldn't have fired all of those nurses that didn't want to get a vaccine that thought that their immune system could handle it, had their own ways of dealing with getting sick, you know? Right. And they're not allowed to use their own education and experience to decide for themselves what they want to do with their own bodies. Yeah. And that's very definition of medical tyranny. Exactly. I mean, that was another thing that the COVID thing really exposed for me, which was that even the doctors aren't allowed to choose the treatment protocols. 
Like, I, I mean, uh, I actually approached the guy, well, the guy that was the head of our hospital system there up there in Mendocino County. And he just looked on his computer and they had a protocol like that they had to follow for every disease and all the symptoms. And that was given to them, I think, by the insurance companies, basically. But the insurance companies uh, just follow what the CDC tells them to, to do, right? Um, and what the Medicare system does, because Medicare and Medicaid is like 50% of the hospital system. So the, a lot of the pricing is is dependent on what they do. Um but anyway, at the end of the day, the doctors have to follow these protocols that they're getting from the insurance companies or else they're liable, right? And the insurance company is not going to pay out. Um, and so when they say, you know, the only uh, the only treatment for COVID is remdesivir and putting you on a ventilator, then that's what they do. Um, they can't they can't prescribe ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or uh, use their own individual judgment about how they would want to treat the disease. Um, and I just thought that was phenomenal. I had realized that a lot of doctors, because doctors in independent practice did, uh, and still to this day, they do have more independence, um, but a lot of doctors have been priced out of because of the insurance costs of being an in independent practice. And so they work for the hospital system. Uh, and then they just are obliged to, to do what the hospital tells them. Um, and so all of this talk of, you know, I trust my doctor. Well, what do you don't know what you're talking about? Um, so I just trust my doctor. And my doctor says, you know, take remdesivir if I get sick or get get the vaccine double boosted as soon as I can. Uh, I trust him. And it's like your doctor is not making those calls for, for herself or himself either. They're just following orders. And it is a medical tyranny. I mean, Dr. Fauci, <laughs> Tony, um, literally can define the treatment protocols that everybody else in the country has to has to uh, follow and he doesn't i mean who's watching tony right rand paul finally but too late right and right and nothing's going to come of it anyway i mean the guy's untouchable it really is like the godfather i mean even even trump couldn't fire him like why didn't trump just fire him <laughs> Yeah. And then he brought in Scott Atlas. Like, why didn't he just fire Fauci and, and then bring Scott into the to the poll position? Uh, I don't know. They had something on Trump, right? They didn't. I don't know. Why didn't he do that? He was bitching about him all the time. It's so strange, actually, to think about that. Fauci. Yeah, to think that runs Trump things. is some sort of hero, but yet he doesn't even have that little bit of power to get rid of Fauci. Yeah. To do I mean, an investigation you- on him or Hillary. <laughs> Right. I wonder uh, how powerful the presidency actually is. I mean, I, I'm one of those who feel like uh, JFK after JFK, you know, it was kind of like this is what we do to presidents that don't toe the line. Um, and after that, I think that uh, I'm not really sure, you know, how many presidents have really, I mean, that much power at all. You figure a president changes every four years, maybe eight years. Um, and how much does the military tell them? I mean, how can one person who switches the helms, you know, uh, at most every eight years, how do they control this executive branch that's got millions of employees and, you know, trillions of, of dollars in a budget? I mean, they, they just can hide the military guys, right? The intelligence guys. 
they they just tell the president what he needs to know. <laughs> right. You know? I mean, that's the way I imagine it. I can't imagine it being any other way. Um, I, I just don't see. Uh, and if you are a proactive president that really try to take the reins of power uh, and try to figure out what was going on in those dusty back corners where billions of dollars go and never come back. Uh, I think those presidents get, you know, they get JFK now. It's very clear. <laughs> it's a, that sent a very clear message. So, um, yeah, yeah I they, kinda, they probably wouldn't even do it with the, the heart attack gun or, <laughs> right. you, you know, the, these, <laughs> uh, measures that they use that can be hidden and, uh, you know, swept sure. under the rug, they probably would JFK him out in yeah. ju- just like they did with Epstein and, uh, that other guy recently, um, you know, they're going to do right. it in broad daylight to make a statement. We can do this and we can get away with it and the public won't react. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I think what, um, I mean, I, I, I think as you alluded to, I basically equate whatever the power structure is, uh, kind of above the, that corporate power structure, that colonizing imperial power structure, the, the really rich guys, you know, the Rothschilds and all that, um, as being above, uh, the presidency, uh, or the you know or the leaders of any one country they kind of pull the strings and I think they are organized like a, a mafia basically it's just a cartel I mean that's what it looks like to me and the cartel has really has the power I think um, uh, and so I think that most presidents basically act as as front men for this uh, for this kind of organization and they they themselves basically just have to do kind of what they're told. Um, I, I just don't see it as a position of, that's really very powerful. I, I remember, and, and I don't think they necessarily even know that. Like, I, I think Trump may have had some kind of intentions of draining the swamp. I mean, I think he might have been telling the truth. That's what he wanted to do. But like I said, once you get in, I, I remember a quote from Trump as he was leaving the White House uh, where he said, uh, if, if, if half the people in this building uh, had tried, ha- had had not been working against me, think of the difference that we could have made. Think of the changes that we could have made, which means that he didn't even have control over the white house, you know, like the white house staff. I mean, these guys, these guys are career, you know, the president, he, Trump was just in there for four years. He he only knew what he was told, you know, the, I just, yeah, I think the executive branch, I mean, if we're going to keep this kind of government, it needs a major overhaul. There's got to be some some kind of oversight of these intelligence agents and and where where all this military money goes. I mean, it's just so much money. Those guys lose a billion dollars just you know just like a, a you would sweep it under the rug or something like a bit of dust floated over there, uh, and we didn't think about it again. And but it was a billion dollars that somebody hoovered up. I mean. This is what Catherine Austin Fitz talks about missing trillions of dollars in the budget, 21 trillion, 24 trillion now or something like that's so much money. Um, and, and it's basically people are unaccountable for it. It gets swallowed up into the military budget and who's watching, you know? So yeah, who's watching the watchers? Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing I wanted to get to because, um, 
us being uh, communicators, us being podcasters, something mm-hmm. that's, you know, very important in my mind is how to how to get messages out to people who wouldn't normally uh, even lend an ear for a second. And, I, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to get through this communication breakdown. Um, and, and, you know, not only the barriers that keep us in the echo chamber, but within the echo chamber as well. And yeah. I, one of the big things that I have noticed is there seems to be this uh, intentional deterioration of emotional intelligence. And mm. I feel that like, that's a very key intelligence that we are losing as a people of earth. Well, yeah. I mean, th- there's no doubt. I mean, that, that is one of the, um, characteristics that I would say of a kind of, I mean, what I call, I guess, the patriarchal culture, um, the more warlike, the more dominating, um, as opposed to uh, indigenous or goddess-based um, culture, um, which are talking about our two sides that need to harmonize, right? But the dominator model is, has spread out over the, the rest of the world at this point, basically. So, um, but uh i think it's just characteristic of the culture that logic um and reason are superior emotions are chaotic uh cloudy you know we can't understand them i mean certainly we're not taught emotional intelligence in school uh you're taught and you're not even really i mean you're not even really taught logic and reasoning skills uh, either but right. but you are given this I mean, I think we can go into the worldview that has has been called scientism now. I mean, this is what people really um, believe in, I think, which is a, a very materialistic world uh, where science um, can dictate the truth. Uh, and you just believe those top scientists. I mean, it's the, the technocratic mythology. A lot of people have bought into it. Um, and so... Uh, I feel like um, it's just another aspect of, of that harmonization that needs to happen to bring things back into um, um, understanding that people's emotional health is actually way more important than how intelligent they are. Right. I mean, this was just a big realization in my own life. I, like I, like you mentioned in the intro, I studied philosophy in, in college and I was big into being, you know, rational, super rational and, and hypercritical. Uh, and you gotta, I guess you gotta get beat down by life a little bit to go, wait a minute, <laughs> maybe I should be paying attention to my emotional health here because that's, what's really driving the bus. <laughs> um, so the more we can bring emotional intelligence um, back into <coughs> the forefront and um, especially prioritizing people's emotional health, because if you're emotionally healthy, guess what? You're going to you're going to uh, find your passion and you're going to learn what it is that you're passionate about. and You're going to be good at it. Right. You're going to be an intelligent, happy, healthy person if you're emotionally strong. And the opposite cannot be said. Lots of very, very smart people uh, are basically emotionally dysfunctional. And I and that's one of the things I think is even a problem with the culture at large, like even with the concept of scientism. Right. It just takes the emotions out of it and and makes the world that we live in a very flat, materialistic, um, you know, pretty alienating place, really. I I, I think uh, I think we can do better. 
Yeah, and uh, these these high tech nerds, uh, speaking of alienated, they they have to be alien in some way. They at right. at the very least, they have created aliens of themselves in that they are absolutely emotionally dead. Um, yeah, and they this seems to be this push of destroying the mere neurons and empathy and um you know curbing all human emotion so that we can that we'll be more likely to accept robotics in our life because we'll be roboticized ourselves yeah and it, it it's to this point you know where you know the masking is de-individualizing and you're not communicating emotions in that way and then this these social distancing and we only contact one another through Zoom, and it just we're unbelievable. We're group animals. We're uh, cre- we're social creatures, so we crave yeah. that. We need that. So it creates in in these people a willingness to accept like AI friends and virtual girlfriends and do uh, Zoom working from home in their cells. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a part of the scientism is this concept of of the singularity. Uh, and that the artificial intelligence is going to like somehow, you know, have this moment where it achieves consciousness, but it's going to be, you know, superhuman. It's going to be super smart and uh, that eventually basically we'll all be kind of mind chipped or brain chipped into this thing and we'll all be functioning as this. I mean, I don't know if people don't make the logical extension in their minds about becoming the Borg. Because that's literally what these guys are building, right? I mean, that's what they're doing. You can look up that they're spending billions of dollars on the technology about how to plug people in uh, to this metaverse uh, and into this AI. And at the same time, they're doing this kind of quantum computing thing where they're wanting to make the AI sentient, conscious, uh, and control all of the rest of us. I mean, it's it's insane. It actually is insane. It's delusional. Uh, it's so anti-human and anti-organic that it's amazing um, that that appears to be the direction that these guys are going to lead our society into uh, unless we say no. You know, we prefer to remain human. Thank you very much. Right. Uh, there's a lot of potential in this body, and you're not letting us tap into that. Uh, and instead, you're trying to force us into this outrageous you know metaverse this virtual reality world i mean it really is crazy actually i mean when i first started even i don't are you familiar with the work of alana freeland yeah i actually had her on the show great excellent yeah she's such a she's just an incredible researcher and she's really connected the dots between the macro and the micro world like connecting chemtrails with uh you know, this kind of voice to skull technology or this brain implantation work that they, that they're doing. I mean, you clearly see that this is, you can look up the peer reviewed studies. I mean, that's what's, that's what has always, uh, that's become a path, the path of, of my, my research. When I hear about something like you hear about graphene oxide, well, let's look at the peer reviewed studies and see what, what scientists have been working on. And lo and behold, uh, they've been working on, uh, injecting people with graphene oxide in order to build these internal neural nets. And, and it's part of this, uh, this whole transhumanist thing. Um, and so I, I mean, 
let's uh i can't be definitive about whether or not the stuff is in all the vaccines although uh, i interviewed dr robert young who found it who claimed to find it in his study so and there are plenty of other people who have, have said that as well but you look at the peer-reviewed studies and you see that, that that's what these guys are working on i mean that's that's ultimately kind of like it's just amazing to me that that we kind of sit around and we give our governments oftentimes give billions of dollars for these guys to figure out how to turn us into cyborgs. And that's what they're working on. I mean, that's crazy. Like, why do we stand for that? I don't know. That's a, that's a whole huge topic. That's a whole episode right. in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want, uh, I wanted to get as much as I can in about the communication breakdown because I, sure. I, um, you know, I want to look at what, our, uh, however you want to call us, conspiracy or truth community, whatever, what yeah. we're doing wrong in trying to awakening people, because I think we we so often try to wake people up with pots and pans and then, you know, banging on pots and pans and that person's just going to get annoyed and pull a pillow over their ears. So maybe right. maybe bring them breakfast in bed, pour them a cup of coffee, meet them halfway, you know. Um, yeah. So I think that we... We, one of the mistakes we make is over flooding them with information. Another thing is intellectual arrogance and we don't listen to them. So what, sure. what's the best way in bridging the gap there? Well, you know, I have to say that I, for a long time, and this is like almost like the difference between nonviolent communication. And then this conversation I had with Mary, I'll bring up again about what she calls sovereign communication. Um, because uh, I got caught in the trap for many years of uh, wanting to be a good listener, for example, um, trying to figure out the best way to approach these kinds of conversations. Um, but that's why I've now gone uh, more in this psychological direction. I, I really think if you can't, you should be able, if you're, if you're having a conversation with an individuated human being, you should be able to have a back and forth where you disagree without hurting anybody's feelings, right? I mean, your emotionally intelligent person can handle a bit of constructive criticism. And then you should be able to essentially apply the logical fallacies to the conversation to try to help each other to discover uh, the, the best point of view, right? The point of view that, that works. Now, you might not change each other's minds, but you should be able to engage in this kind of dialogue without getting shut down. And what I discovered, as you have and as all of us have, is that when you try to have a conversation, I agree with you, a lot of times you flood them with information um, and they get overwhelmed. But uh, more often than not, it's about their reaction they simply can't hear. Um, you know, they have this this cognitive dissonance um, uh, or this confirmation bias. Uh, where they can only see their own point of view and they're not really listening to you. And, and that's when you have to be able to set a boundary and say, you know, I'm not going to have this conversation if you're not going to listen to me. You have to respect my point of view. And that's, I mean, right? We get no respect <laughs> wherever, wherever we go. I mean, you almost have to like, hush, hush. Are you, are you cool? You know, are you a conspiracy theorist? So we can actually have a conversation about my view of reality um, I mean, it's less true here, but where I lived in California, you know, I did feel like there was a lot of social pressure to just not talk about it, <laughs> I, which is emotionally abusive in and of itself. I mean, we ought to be able to talk about our feelings uh, with our friends and in our community without feeling shame. 
right? Um, yeah, there, there's some. So I think we're there's some areas where you have to uh, draw those boundaries be, for your own personal mental health. Um, but also, I think that um, you know, just being human, we humans with all of this uh, research that we've done and all this intelligence inside of our brains that we want to sh- reveal to people, you know, we can sometimes get lost in hearing ourselves speak and we're not e- paying attention to their reaction and maybe gain feedback and recognize, stay aware how they're reacting. When their eyes start uh, glossing over, maybe ask them if there's something they didn't understand. Um, because I've noticed something, if you take your time with somebody and every step of the way where they're not getting it, you walk them along and with baby steps, they may not take that seed and grow it right in that moment, but that doesn't mean sure. it wasn't planted. Maybe somewhere along the line, they hear something that adds up uh, what you were trying to um, give to them. And then they're like, you know what? That does make sense how you put it. I've heard that yeah. before, and it's a beautiful moment. You're not going to get that from everybody, but, you know, just one person is enough. Yeah. I mean, believe me, I, I, uh, I have affected a few people in my time. Uh, I can proudly say, but, um, overall it's been real challenging. Um, even using, you know, again, like these nonviolent communication techniques. I mean, that's ultimately why I've started. Um, I started to use this psychological point of view. Um, I, because I, I really feel like what's happening is way more psychological and, and then it's about emotional health. Um, right. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I honestly think that a lot of people in our culture have been emotionally traumatized to the point where they're just very easily, they're very easily, uh, affected by trauma-based mind control techniques. Uh, essentially. I mean, that's what it's, that's what I think is going on here on kind of a big picture that uh, definitely. And, and so the path forward is almost more of healing uh, and and learning how to heal each other emotionally. I mean, I don't know exactly. I mean, that's certainly something that happens on a, like a case by case basis and with each individual, but we've got to be compassionate Um because it's really not, it's not their fault. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be right. I don't want to be right. I just want to be respected for my point of view in these conversations. Like I don't have to be correct. I don't have to prove that my perspective is right. It's this whole thing about being, I mean, it's just, uh, again, it's just logical fallacies, right? The ad hominem attacks. You're just a conspiracy theorist. I mean, the funny thing about like these ideas of confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance, they, the mainstream narrative started putting these, these terms out. I heard it from them. And I thought to myself, maybe I do have cognitive dissonance. You know, I'm going to double down and on my research and I'm going to like, really question, do I just have a confirmation bias here? Um, but what I ended up realizing over time was that those terms were projected onto me, that these people have, co- you know, cognitive dissonance. And it's not because again, because I, my point of view is correct, but it's because my point of view is, is rational. I mean, I think, and if it's not, then point out to me where it's irrational. That's where logic, I mean, this was the, I guess I'm, I'm sticking to this. Well, you want to talk about communication and, and this recent interview was really important because 
it's almost like the definition of emotional health is this capacity to engage in really logical conversations and you should be able to test your theory. But if you're talking to someone where you can't test your theory because they won't engage in a logical conversation with you, but you're getting told that you have cognitive dissonance and you're getting told that you have confirmation bias, that's the gaslighting, right? They're the ones who are avoiding having the logical conversation with you. Um, And so I don't know, you know, once you, if you can perceive that in a conversation, then you have to set the boundary and end the conversation um, and not try to control the other person because that's never going to work. Just over time, uh, you can have a positive impact on people and just stand in, in your own individuation. You know, you become an example for others when you can hold uh, alternative points of view because you can stay true to your own sense of critical thinking that's led you this far down your path, you know? So uh, the other thing I wanted to say about this though, is I do feel like, um, I mean, for me personally, I would just love to see some kind of movement come out of this. I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen and it doesn't seem like it is. Everybody in the scene is like we talked about, it's not just the left, right paradigm, but it's also the the train terrain theorists, uh, versus the people who may may believe that a virus exists or the you know the flat earthers fighting the round earthers or whatever it is i mean it's just whatever i mean the aliens uh versus the you know, classified tech <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's just amazing right and it's all like well all that stuff is cool and i'm i'm happy that you're passionate about it but can we get together and stop these mafia guys right. from destroying our livelihoods and our lifestyles you know Right. That common enemy all boils down to the common enemy. And honestly, what I feel like is that if there was some kind of political movement and I've been, I've been dabbling with, uh, I I think what people call conspiracy theorism theorists uh, or conspiracy theories now is actually what um, would have been called populism 120 Mm -hmm. years ago. I'm, uh, you know, I, I haven't studied the populist movement too in depth, but, um, you know, they were talking about sound money back then. They were talking about the robber barons taking control of everything. Uh, and they weren't using the left-right paradigm. They were really working together, people from all kinds of different beliefs and situations who just kind of realized that the system was working against them, you know. And uh, uh, I think that that perspective is the, is the perspective that's basically been shunned. Uh, you know, I, I think the movement kind of died out 19... 19- 1904, I feel like um, there was a, a senator that ran for president. He didn't he didn't get it. And then um, once uh, the first Roosevelt got an office in 1904, it was kind of the end of the of the populist party. But then once the Federal Reserve was created, uh, that was kind of the death knell for the whole movement. And then after that, I mean, after that, I see in my sense of history that the upper classes really gain the upper hand uh, on, on the rest of us, because once they got the tax exempt foundation system set up, they were able to start doing a lot of social engineering. I mean, they replaced the naturopathic healthcare system with uh, allopathic healthcare. They started basically the entire public education system Um and they were able to gain control of, you know, what people got taught and how they got and how, how they thought about healing themselves. I mean, it was just a lot of social engineering 
which continues to this day. Um, and so starting about 1920, you almost never hear anything about a, a, a populist perspective, um, a populist historical perspective. And yet there have been thousands and thousands of books published in the last hundred years or so by people who are called conspiracy theorists today, right? I mean, we've I mean, we've read books. You know, I've interviewed guys that wrote books back in this in the 80s and 70s for sure, and and they learned it from guys that wrote books in the 40s and 50s. Um, I mean, it conspiracy theory has been going on for forever. I mean, the people that have been awake to what the rich guys are up to, you know. Um, but it had to go underground. It's never been in the mainstream media in the whole of the 20th century, and it's never taught in schools, uh, just like libertarianism or Austrian economics is never going to be taught in schools because they don't want you to know that stuff. Um, they don't want you to know this historical perspective that uses a top-down paradigm instead of the left-right paradigm, because uh, then you'll start getting angry at the guys at the top. Um yeah, if you so, if you read some of the quotes from Thomas Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson, when it comes to the newspapers of his time, like he was, uh, you know, railing against the lies that the the mainstream right. news of that time was putting out. So that's it's nothing new. What we're going through is nothing new. We've, yeah. And we need to realize that we've we've all been uh, victims of this indoctrination of the propaganda of the gaslighting our entire lives. So yeah. I, I think we need to stop pointing fingers and cr thinking of ourselves as being on this side and them being on that side. Um, you know, just because they got the vaccine, maybe they made a mistake. Yes. Um, maybe, sure. maybe they were duped. Yes. But they're still your neighbor. They're still your coworker. You still have to live amongst them. They're still pulling their weight in the community in whatever way. And we need them. And I, I, that's something I'm getting tired of is this divide based on the most ridiculous thing as to what you wear on your face. I know that we're the ones who are most attacked, but I, I guess we got to be the ones to, uh, you know, to suck it up and be the ones who can take it. And, Right. Just uh, offer that heart back at them. If they don't accept it, then, you know, like you said, those boundaries. Well, I'm not going to get through to this person. I'm not going to waste my energy. Um, I'd, oh, In closing here, I'd like to wrap it up because uh, mm -hmm. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, bring this up. You, you already brought up uh, Allison McDowell and Derek Rose, and I know you've interviewed yeah. both of them, and you did a blog about that situation. Um, so talking about nuances, would you like to explain the nuances of that situation and how perhaps those two could come together? Yeah, I mean, that was an that was an interesting situation for me because it was really the culmination of like 10 years of podcasting where I had been seeking this um this um, compromise between the left and the right paradigm. And I have been observing because in my experience, and this might not be the same for everybody, but in my experience, the, the libertarians, especially uh, people who identify as voluntarist uh, have for, for whatever reason, it's easy for us to kind of see through the BS. Um, I think that if you, if you learn a political philosophy that's based on, uh, nonviolent interaction, um, and individual rights, natural rights, uh, then you develop a kind of a, uh, a, a system of virtue or a moral code that really, um, respects the fact that, um, 
other people can other people have uh, individual rights. Um, gosh, I, I almost I kind of lost my train of thought on that one, but um, I was getting back to uh, the oh the, so. I guess then when I, I interviewed both uh, Allison and Derek and, um, and I saw that this divide was happening. I mean, the, the cryptocurrency thing, um, I guess before I get into this, I, I want to say I saw a lot of like more progressive people. That's, that's sorry, excuse me about that, but that's okay. um, that, that was my train of thought here. I was trying to say that. Uh, so like, you know, around 2010, I think about guys like James Corbett or whatever the, who were on the scene. And, and Derek Rose was getting started about that time, maybe even a little earlier than that. Um, and there were a lot of libertarians that were more kind of expressing their perspectives um, and, and more open-minded and aware to the, the sort of cartel system of colonialism outside of the left-right paradigm. So a lot of conspiracy theorists are libertarians, basically. And then around the time of the, the Bernie Sanders situation uh i think actually a lot of progressives kind of woke up <laughs> i mean i think they just they just saw that bernie got screwed out of that uh, of that election and clearly that primary was was heavily fixed in hillary clinton's favor uh and all of the people that had been bernie supporters once they kind of like that was their rabbit hole you know once they saw that my god if they can fix a primary like this uh what else are they doing <laughs> And and so a lot of people, uh, a lot of people kind of woke up. A lot of people from the political left and started becoming more and more, getting more and more into the conspiracy theory scene. Um, and so I wasn't really, I wasn't surprised when I saw that uh, Allison McDowell had come around and she was clearly had this kind of left wing perspective about things, which I thought was a great opportunity to try to figure out how to, um, you know, how to figure out how to harmonize these energies so that the system. You know, so that the the uh, the movement maybe you know right could have some kind of a, a unifying philosophical foundation. Um, I thought that it could turn into something, and I spent a lot of work when I saw then that Allison and Derek started getting into these spats, uh, typically over the cryptocurrency thing. So the cryptocurrency issue is actually super fundamental um, because it's got both. I mean, at least when cryptocurrency first came on the scene, again, a lot of libertarians jumped on it because uh, as people that see through um, the the corruption in the in the banking industry, I mean, if you understand monetary theory from an Austrian school perspective, the fraud becomes very apparent. Uh, and so when cryptocurrencies came on the scene, we thought, my God, this is a decentralized way of, of creating a currency. Uh, it can be used to circumvent the uh, the central banking cartel, and we could actually use this uh, as a as a tool for liberation for for the people, right? Because we didn't get into this tonight, but but central banking is a big part of of how the cartel operates. It's how I think uh, they skim off the top with their interest rates uh, from all of our labor, everybody's labor in the economy. They use this central banking system. It's, it's central to, to how the, what I would describe as an empire or this large cartel system of colonization works. Um, and so, like I said, libertarians were very excited that cryptocurrencies could be this, this tool for liberation. Well, um, 
you know, people on the progressive left, if, if you're influenced by Marxism or Marx's theory of labor, then you basically think that everybody's labor is, is you know, everybody should, everybody's labor is worth the same. Like, like we're working as a community uh, and everybody plays their part, but everybody, you know, everybody should rise up. There shouldn't be uh, any kind of class conflict. Clearly, um, the financial system from a Marxist point of view uh, is problematic. Um, making a profit, a business model for a profit becomes problematic because every instance from their point of view of profit making is essentially immoral. It's a form of control. Um, I don't understand how they think that if you're engaging in voluntary behavior, the typical argument is the, the evil capitalist system is oppressive to, to the laboring class. So they're not ever in a, in a position to grant consent. Um, but uh, that hasn't been my experience. I think a lot of people can consent, uh, to, uh, charging a profit for their labor, uh, at whatever the market price is without it, it being an immoral action. But nonetheless, this is kind of the Marxist perspective. And my feeling was pretty strong that, um, this is, uh, this is Alison McDowell's perspective. And when you have this perspective, then what do you care about a free currency market? Like if all currencies are are bad and lead to this kind of capitalist uh, oppressive um, system of labor control, uh, then then freeing up the currency market, like the currency market, which from a libertarian point of view is the central control mechanism of the cartel, from a uh, more Marxist perspective, it's just a symptom of the larger problem of having a market system at all, of having currency use whatsoever. So having given that kind of long-winded explanation, I think this is why a lot of people persuaded by, by Marxism um, are also easily swayed into the notion that the whole cryptocurrency market is basically just um, a kind of a tool for, for the technocrats. Now, having said that, it's a, a very nuanced conversation about the whole thing, because lo and behold, I mean, Allison does excellent work and she has exposed how uh, these cryptocurrencies can also be used. I mean, the libertarian argument was that they were very private and each coin that you own, nobody else could look into it. Nobody else could look on it, but they can also build these things uh, and and even create mechanisms to get around those those safety security concerns. Uh, and then all of a sudden on this electronic blockchain, they can actually collect all the data that's on the chain, everything that anybody bought, any the timestamp, when you bought it, how much you got, uh, you know, like uh, suddenly getting a receipt from everybody's transaction uh, all over the planet all at once and having these huge computers that can crunch all this data. Uh, so for a system that wants to completely control the market so that they can profit off of the, you know, the captive market for a cartel system, for, right? For a protection racket, this is a godsend. And now we have these central bank digital currencies, which can take these, this to the next level, uh, which is a programmable currency, which means they can give you a currency that says you have to spend this in the next two weeks and you can only spend it on broccoli. You can't spend it on cigarettes and beer, you know, or whatever. They can program it to be spent on whatever they want, whenever they want. And we're just going to have to do what they say. Um, 
So there's this huge downside to the whole blockchain thing. Um, and there's even a quite the question in my mind as to whether the, I mean, Bitcoin may very well have been started by the NSA, right? I mean, they could have, they could have gotten all of these libertarians completely hoodwinked into the, into the whole currency thing. Um, believing that it was a tool for liberation when it was always planned to be a tool for this kind of oppression, this new slave system, this technocratic slave system. Um, and that's a conversation to me that is huge nuance, like hugely, we have to break down the ideology and we have to really sit down and analyze uh, what is blockchain technology? Can we use it in a good way? Or does it always have to be used um, in this kind of oppressive way? Um, and and so um, this whole argument really typified to me everything about the left-right paradigm situation that I have been thinking about for like, I mean, literally almost decades at this point. Like, how do we get a, a, out of this left-right paradigm uh, trap? Um, so I, I focused on it because I wanted to uh, I wanted to understand it. And the thing that I couldn't the thing that really start, probably started bothering me the most was that the the people who followed Allison McDowell, they had no respect for the fact that the libertarians were trying to do the right thing, right? That they they may have been wrong. Maybe blockchain is this oppressive tool. Maybe there's no way to use this blockchain technology for uh, as a tool for freedom, for liberation. But, but I don't know the answer to that question. I want to hear the nuanced conversation about it. Um, and I do respect that, you know, Derek Bros has been an anti-technocratic activist for, for 15 plus years now. You know, he's written multiple books. Uh, against the technocratic system. I mean, he's got his heart in the right place. Uh, so that's what I didn't get is why, you know, why it was always about greed or, uh, you know, they haven't done their research or they're wrong or whatever. I mean, I just wanted to be like, I don't care if Derek's wrong or not. Like I, he's a good person. So let's have a conversation and try to figure out, uh, you know, what's going on here? What What is actually going on? And what I discovered then was that, uh, you know, it was really difficult to try to get that kind of, um, that kind of conversation going from the Allison McDowell camp. And that's when I started to really feel like there's something going on with this Marxist perspective um, and, and this kind of progressive mentality uh, that maybe I need to set boundaries against, right? I mean, when you're not willing to engage in the nuance of the conversation, when somebody else is, you know, like, hey, let's learn from each other. Um, and I mean, granted, their arguments would devolve very quickly. Everybody got defensive. It's a difficult conversation to have. Um, but if you're not willing to come to the table to have the conversation, that's when that's the kind of the red flag for me. That's when I started thinking, um, I, I, you know, I, I feel like there are a lot of people that really don't understand the libertarian perspective when it comes to economics uh, and the use of and how a free market can be used. It just boils down to, like I said at the beginning, in a libertarian world, you can be as communist as you want to be and nobody will stop you. So, you know, Stop it with the controlling behavior. Let other people be libertarians if they want to be, and then we can all get along, you know? <laughs> and this, that's, that's how I felt about it, yeah. The sad thing about that is, um, 
you know, everybody who follows uh, one camp or another, or if they follow both, we're all being deprived of that conversation of what might right. come out of that. That's it, it's so unfortunate. Right. And, um, you know, I really tried, Josh. I really tried to produce that. I was offering different people. I approached different people to have, diff, you know, to try to have this conversation. And, and it was kind of uh, just shut down. Um, and I thought it was unfortunate. I still think it's un- it's unfortunate. I'd actually like to, uh, I'll go ahead and say it. I'd like to interview Bantam Joe. I'm kind of kind of chatting with him here and there trying to convince him to do it. But um, he was Allison's kind of go-to guy. He's a, he's a software engineer. And I don't even want to talk uh, about the conflict. I just want to talk about the Bitcoin because I still want to have that conversation. I want to talk with, uh, you know, really smart people who understand data encryption. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely the guy. <laughs> how blockchain uh, should be used. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that whole uh, division and not that unwillingness to have a conversation, um, I, that kind of brings me back to your what you said about the individ- individuated self um, to where you are confident in your bullshit detection. You're confident in your ability to sift through new information and recognize if something may, be, may have validity or not. Um, so if you're confident yeah. in yourself, you would have a conversation with anybody, no matter how far to the opposite end they are. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's the solution is figuring out how to have good conversation, right? <laughs> and and learning how to do it in a way where you're not attached to the outcome uh, and you're not trying to change somebody's opinion, but you can still stand fast in your point of view and, you know, let them take it or leave it. Uh, and maybe even uh, open their mind just a little bit uh, in the process. And, so. if, and if they really are your enemy, don't you want to know thy enemy? Don't you want right. to know whether they are truly your enemy before you completely well, push them aside? And that's what's so funny, uh, Josh, about the whole thing is that like, aren't like we're all in this together, right? We, what is this whole like making an enemy? out of out of somebody else who just has a disagreement with with you i mean i i i was involved with these i would get on these facebook chat anarchist trap chat groups and argue with the the ancoms you right the anarcho-communists versus the anarcho-capitalists and these guys will just argue incessantly like incessantly over and over the same stuff over and over again and i'm talking about for years and years uh, and I kind of wanted to engage in that because I wanted to understand the fundamental differences in the left-right paradigm. It, it's been it's been something that's fascinated me for a long time, you know, this division in people, and uh, and I just I you know it's just amazing to me that anarchists of all people, you know, how many anarchists are there? Like, huh. is it? 0.1% of the population, probably not even close. Right. <laughs> and so you'd think if you found another anarchist, you'd just be so excited. Like, <laughs> yeah, these straight up hugs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is all this argument that's happening? And that's really the same thing amongst the, the quote unquote conspiracy theorists, which I, like I said, I'd like to start calling the populists or the neo populists or something, because, um, and not the populist nationalism that they try to blame on Trump supporters. But the actual populist movement that just tried to uh, shaft the rich guys. Um, but I, I hope that uh, that some kind of movement can come together. I mean, one of the things that that I wanted to say before we close this off is is that I do think that there's more of us out there than we realize. 
that there's a lot of people that are at least, you know, a little bit awake, a little bit open-minded about the the level of corruption that's happening in the government system. Uh, and, and they wouldn't be, you know, adverse to having some of these conversations uh, that really get into it. Um, but there's so much social pressure because of the mainstream narrative uh, and just enough people. Um, it's funny. I, I read, I did an interview one time about this book called Political Ponerology. This was a long time ago when I was on public radio here in Mendocino. And uh, um, the guy who wrote it actually had passed away. I interviewed the publisher and it was about the guy who wrote it was a psychologist in Romania when in the post-World War II period when the Russian came in and the Iron Curtain shut down in Romania. So he kind of witnessed the transition of Romanian culture from pre-Soviet times to, to the post-Soviet times. And, and he wrote this fascinating book on like, why do we let, basically, why do we let evil people well, control our lives? You know, what's going on in, in the world when Hitler's and Stalin's uh, can take control of populations and get them to do these horrible things. And the conclusion he came to was that it only took like, I want to say it was like, it was less than 10% of the population that had to be basically true believers. Um, And that was enough to control the other 90% of the population because then they were just sort of shamed and bullied, right? Into not speaking out against what was going on. Uh, And that may well be the case today, right? I mean, maybe there's 10% of the people are true believers in, you know, the lockdown, the COVID lockdowns or the vaccination programs or the mandates or any of that. Um, but the, but you know, the feeling is that you, you dare not speak these words in public because you're afraid you're going to get shamed, right. Or, um, or somehow basically emotionally attacked at least, uh, if not, I mean, people certainly have their jobs threatened and, and the abuse gets worse. Everybody knows it, right? The abuse gets worse, but it doesn't take that much of the population. And I, so I feel, I still believe that, that if we can kind of figure out a narrative and we can come out, we can get over all of these differences. And I get that conspiracy theorists are, we're passionate about a lot of different things, but I think we just got to get, uh, we got to get behind this notion that the, what we need is to decentralize power. And that's that's just enough, right? If you just say to yourself, let's just get rid of the corporate government power and let's move it into the state governments and then let's move it into the city governments, you know, the county governments, so that a lot of these important political decisions are made locally where you can actually see the people and have conversations with the people in your community and then you can make changes on a local level about what you learn, you know, and what you teach your kids in school and the kind of healthcare that you want for your community and all of these things. Um, I think that would be enough to, to make the change. And I, and I'd be willing to say that uh, there's a lot of people out there who agree with that. It's a pretty simple statement. Um, And so it's my hope that, that just behind that, like, if you think that and you're open-minded enough to kind of understand that what you're getting from the corporate media and the mainstream narrative is really not a very accurate depiction of the world around you, then let's get together and let everybody else know how many of us there are. And I think that would make a big difference just to know and be allowed to speak, right? I mean, (laughs) to be validated uh, because there's just too many of us. 
uh, if we could let everybody know that there's a lot of us out there and uh, we demand that our feelings are validated, um, I think we could actually start to make a difference. Um, and that's the uh, that's kind of the direction I'm going. I mean, I, I vacillate every day between should uh, should we really try to uh, you know organize this thing? Are we going to make this happen? What's going on? Uh, or just turn and tail and, and find my 40 acres somewhere, you know, <laughs> and digging in deep because <laughs> that's where it's looking like it's going, but <laughs> we'll yeah. see. I still like to be optimistic that we can, you know, we can stop it before it gets too bad, but we'll, we'll see. Logical optimism is what we must maintain. Right. Um, yeah. Aldous Huxley you. called it herd poisoning. If one cow moves to the left, the entire herd moves to the left and, you know, they call it, herd immunity because um, they want to keep us in this herd mentality because we're easily more easily to be herded. Um, yeah. And that there's that thing of the one cow that sticks out may be the one that gets picked off by the predator. So, you know, people right. don't want to stick out away from the herd, but if we can give them a, a group that they see that they can join and be, uh, collected yeah. within and that's a, what a safe space right <laughs> right i don't like so that funny. term but i know, I know. A, a safe herd a safe right. group um, but i want to i do want to say that that actually uh, has some meaning to me because it is this projection from the left they're talking about safe space making safe spaces while they're like while i feel like i need a safe space from them right, right. i mean that's you know that's just the thing it's like that's what bothers me is the hypocrisy uh, you know, the, the kind of the virtue signaling, that's not really virtuous. Um, and then the bullying and the shaming that goes along with it, that, that these are, these are the red flags of the dysfunctional relationship. So, you know, we should start, we should start taking the, those terms away from them. Uh, I'm right. I mean, um, you know, we started the conversation with the idea about the power of language and they know what they're doing when they use terms like lockdown, um, and so if they're going to use terms like safe space, you know, maybe we can co-opt it and throw it in their face. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I want a danger space because what is life without danger after all? Yeah, well, fair enough. I I miss uh, because we're in such an echo chamber these days. I don't get called conspiracy nut job as often as I used to. And I kind of miss right. it. I want to be offended. <laughs> uh, so, Doug, uh, any plugs, products, pr promotions? Where can my listeners find you? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll just uh, send people to my website. I think it's www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, and then I've been, uh, I do have a Facebook page, The Shift with Doug McKinty, uh, and a YouTube channel of the same name. I really would actually recommend that people, if they want to check it out, um, if they want to check out the videos, go to rockfin.com if you haven't signed up and sign up there because that's that's been a great platform. Uh, and there's a lot of other good content on there as well. Um, so that's a good place to check it out. And I'm on Twitter at D McKenty. So, um, but actually my personal Facebook page is where I get most of my action these days, as much as I'd love to, uh, as much as I'd love to branch away from Facebook. Um, it's like the only place where I've been able to cultivate, you know, the kind of numbers that provide for distribution of the podcast. And, uh, so it's the one that I'm currently probably most active on that and Twitter. All right. Um, I know we went a, a bit over the time period that uh, we discussed, but uh, that time went so fast and there's still yeah. a billion topics that I, a bit, billion different routes we could have went down. Um, right. So I, I would love to have you come back on sometime in the future. 
Yeah, absolutely, Josh. It was a great conversation. I'm always I'm always down for some good conversation, so I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. All right, appreciate it, and you take care. Yep, you too. With a push of the button, one may converse with anyone anywhere around the world. Yet the more access to communication we have, the more communication breaks down. The more virtually interconnected, the greater the disconnect in reality. The more interface, the less face-to-face. Discussion has been locked down. Debate has been locked out. Total censorship and cancellation is locked, loaded, and aimed from an ear-plugged firing squad. Mental control is locked in, and we are blocked out from informational exchange. Yet we can still open up the lines. What is stopping you from saying hello to your neighbor? When's the last time you've engaged the postman or had a chat with the cashier? How long has it been since you've sat down and shook the hand of a local stranger? We enter this world with two ears and one mouth, to listen more and speak less. So why not hear an opposing view whenever you can and share your voice when the time is appropriate? Before you know it, you're finding agreement in the disagreements, likeness in differences, kindred spirits in the divide. The fix for communication breakdown is in continued communication. So speak amongst one another now or forever hold your piece of the puzzle to this marriage of the social construct. No more voices shouting at voices. Ladies and gentlemen, lend one another your ears and open minds. Shoot the shit as we did once upon a time. With love, peace, happiness. Signing off. Deuces. Deuces.